we glorify our God most when he satisfies us most. Father God, may this morning be marked by deep satisfaction in the only one who was and is and will be, the causer of all things, the upholder of space and time, the only one who can solve problems and who can save our souls. Meet us in this hour for the glory of your name. You are worthy. All glory be to Christ. Open up your book to us. Give us eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. Satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Teach us, O Lord, your word. Unite our hearts to fear your name. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Your word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. A people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, upon them a light has come. Jesus showed up into this world and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This world that we live in is scathed by darkness and light is a powerful gift from our God. The more extended your time in the night, the more you will appreciate and hope for the light. Light also has the power to etch itself on our minds, helping us remember our way when night casts its shadow and how often it does in our world. This very morning, I watched the sun rise at dawn, and there were fresh divine divine mercies that the psalmists tell us have pursued us into this room this morning. What a very kind creator we have. What a kind shepherd both in green pastures and in the valley of deepest darkest darkness. He will never leave. He will never forsake. Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 11. This morning we are going to meditate on the power of light and the gift of sight as we live in a world where the days of darkness are many. 
The preacher in Ecclesiastes is one who had not only tasted the bitterness of this cursed world, he had also tasted and seen the beauties and the bigness of our God, and he learned to celebrate that God. In 11 verse 7 through 12 1, he's going to supply us some tangible help to know how we can best be satisfied in this God. When we cannot fully grasp all of his ways in this crooked and confused world. Read with me as I, follow along with me as I read. Ecclesiastes chapter 11 verse 7. Light is sweet. And it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Our passage has two units. Verses 7 and 8 identify the need to be satisfied in the Lord always. And then verses 11, 9 through 12, 1 help clarify how to be satisfied in the Lord always. Help us, O God. The need to be satisfied in the Lord. Verse 7 opens, light is sweet And it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. It's like the sweetness of sleep at the end of an extended long work day. Or maybe two weeks of living in a tent. The sight of light is tasteful. It's it's beautiful. It's delightful. The preacher lived in the days of shepherd's fires and oil lamps. When the dark of night was really dark. And when those journeying throughout the night could only do so by the moonlight. That is, they made it through the darkness by a reflective light. In those days, the sun's sweetness came in the way that it helped people do their normal functioning, setting the rhythm of sleep and work, seasons and years, identifying times for celebration and for burials. In the first work week of Genesis chapter 1, it's significant that the day did not end in the dark. Why? Because there was evening and there was morning, day one. According to God's timing, light always triumphs over night. As night gives way to sight and dawn gives rise to noon. 
But when you are living in the midst of darkness, our souls need the Lord's tender reminding that the morning dawn will come because the Son of God has risen. In our world, the preacher says in chapter 1, verse 5, the sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it will rise. Morning light always triumphs over the darkness of night. In the midst of blackness, the sun is already hastening to the place where it will rise again. Now this book of Ecclesiastes uses light and darkness metaphorically. When it says light is sweet, it's using a general truth in order to proclaim a spiritual reality. Within this book, while it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun, within this book, most of the people in the world are living in darkness, blind to the beauties and the goodness of God, never able to appreciate light. Consider, for example, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, says the preacher, just as there is more gain in light than in darkness. Then notice what he says in verse 14. The wise person, wise person, has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Every person on the planet is living under the sun. But according to this book, the fool is living a life that is blind to the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Elsewhere in the book, we learn that a stillborn child goes from this world in darkness, having never seen the sun. Chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. We also learn that everyone in this world, believer and non-believer alike, will die when the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Both the fool and the wise man experience levels of darkness. But oh, it's only of the fool that we read in chapter 5, 17. All of his days, he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. There are dark days for the believer. There are dark days for the non-believer. But it is ever night and spiritually dark for the fool. The fool never appreciates the common graces in such a way that it engenders praise to the one from whom, through whom, and for whom are all things. Therefore, it is only the wise in this book who could actually say, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. This passage is written for the wise. We can assume from these words that the preacher I think most likely it was Solomon, a very wise king, counts himself among the wise. He has himself experienced, tasted and seen this goodness of God. He's felt the warmth of his faithfulness. 
there's more involved than personal testimony here. He's wanting his students to actually account for the significance of glimpses of God's grace. Be awakened, have eyes to see, because they are gifts from God in a world where the days of darkness will be many. Now I assume that most of you in this room have experienced the kindness of Christ in entering in and moving you from darkness to light. I mean, I assume that you have tangible memories of having tasted and seen the goodness of God, experienced his faithfulness. You've experienced his closeness. You've heard him speak to you through his word. You've rejoiced in the declaration of no condemnation. You are those who have sensed the strong presence of God in the midst of pain and in the midst of loss. You felt the relief of deliverance and you know the hope of eternal life. You know that light is sweet. For you've lived in darkness and by God's mercy, the end of the tunnel has come. But the reality for you and for me, if you sit here as a believer in the name, in, in Jesus Christ, the reality is that, the, that once the clouds of past pain dissipate, for the believer, greater storms await. And the wise sage of our text wants to urge us today not to forget past grace, for it is going to be a fuel to give us hope in future grace. Past glimpses of God's mercy help true saints maintain their satisfaction in God when trials test our faith. Having experienced the joy in the daylight, believers gain a hope for dawn, a hope for noon that can carry and guide them through the night. Look with me now at verse 8 of chapter 11. Why is seeing light so sweet? I think the answer is given to us in verse 8. Now there's a challenge right away in that the ESV that is before me has translated the connecting word, that conjunction, as so. And I honestly just struggle to even comprehend how the translator arrived at that. This is the Hebrew conjunction key. And it's not infer inferential. Now the New American Standard, the Christian Standard Bible, represented the conjunction by the word indeed, which is much closer and indeed can communicate what I think is going on here. Elsewhere in the book, the exact same structure happens numerous times. And over and over again, the ESV translators rendered the key as for. That is, because. I think that verse 8 gives the reason why verse 7 is true. Why is light sweet? Light is sweet for, here's my translation, if a person lives many years, 
he should rejoice in them all. And he should remember that the days of darkness will be many. Let me repeat that. Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. For if a person lives many years, he should rejoice in them all. And he should remember that the days of darkness will be many. Now, according to this logic, the reason light is sweet is not because of what it gives us in relation to our past, but rather what the light supplies us in relation to our future. It is pleasant to see the sun because it gives us fuel for maintaining our satisfaction in God, even through the darkest days of suffering. Glimpses of God's goodness in this age are gifts to help us endure. For those past glimpses of grace get worked into our mind. The light etches itself so that it reminds us in the seasons of darkness of God's worth, his beauty, and gives us confidence that he will deliver us again. Notice first that if God grants that we live many years, we are supposed to, it says, rejoice in them all. It's like Paul to the Philippians when he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Really? Always? Again, I'll say it, rejoice. Or Paul to the church in Rome. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we even rejoice in our sufferings. Dr. Johnson reminded us last week, James opens his book, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, because you know something. You know that the testing of your faith is going to develop steadfastness. Rejoice in the Lord. There is a time to be born and there is a time to die. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, between that window, rejoice. In times of planting and plucking, killing and healing, weeping and laughing, we are called to rejoice. Through mourning and dancing, embracing and refraining, seeking and losing, we are to rejoice. In times of silence and speaking, loving and hating, war and peace, we are to remain satisfied in our God and all that he is for us. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. Chapter 3, verse 1. But in all things, throughout your many years, come what may, may God help us rejoice. Light is sweet because of the way it helps us maintain God-conscious joy. Even when the storms darken our perspective. Notice the very next statement. So it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun, for every person should remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Even the wise who fear the Lord and have been declared right in him, even the wise will not always see and feel the rays of God's goodness. 
For us in this room, the days of darkness will be many. Even as believers, we are to anticipate seasons of extended suffering. Many of you come here, it's your, it's your first semester. These next three or four years could be extremely challenging for you. And believe me, it will not mean that God has left you alone. Paul identified that we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, Romans 8, 17. He says to the Philippians, it has been granted to you as a gift of God that you would not only believe, but that you would suffer. From the hand of God, it's been granted that you would suffer for his sake. Philippians 1.29, through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22, and if we endure, brothers and sisters, we will reign with him. But if we deny him, he will deny us. 2 Timothy 2.12. These realities are what makes seeing and savoring the shining of God's goodness all the sweeter. If one lives many years, many days of those years will be filled with darkness, filled with pain, filled with times when God's goodness seems distant. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, memorialize the moments when you are tasting and seeing the goodness of God, because you're going to need them in your tomorrows. When you've seen his power, when you've savored his mercy, let those glimpses of grace, those glimpses of faithfulness sustain you when the darkness feels like it will not lift. Seeing the Son of God's goodness reminds us that light always wins, that morning always comes, that darkness will dissipate, and that God will continue to be faithful and to carry us into a new day. I'm reminded at this point of Paul's words to the Philippians. Rejoice always. I will say it again. Rejoice. He's thinking broadly, not just limited. Rejoice when the hot foot of Sunday is in your hand. Rejoice when your intramural team wins. Rejoice when you're standing at the altar staring at the eyes of your soon-to-be spouse. Rejoice always. Where does he go from here? Let your reasonableness, is it really reasonable for you to stand true for God, to, to trust him and to fear him simply because of who he is and not what he gives or takes away? Let your reasonableness be known to everyone and then hear this promise, the Lord is at hand. He's talking to a suffering people as he sits in the middle of a prison. And then he says, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with what? Thanksgiving. Remember the light. 
when you're in the midst of the anxiety. Remember what you've seen in the past and what will it do? It will fuel peace. It will be the instrument through which a peace that surpasses understanding will guard your heart. It will guard your mind in Christ Jesus. With every dawn comes the promise of fresh mercy. So light is sweet because of the way it allows you and me to use past glimpses of brilliant and warm grace to heighten hope for something beyond the night. Past encounters with God create hope for more showers, rays of mercy. So I urge you to nurture gratitude. Nurture it in your soul. Gratitude for God's past mercies, past faithfulness, because it's going to fuel your steadfastness when your faith is tested. Being satisfied in God, very clearly according to this text, is not bound by circumstance. The preacher of Ecclesiastes, I do not believe, was a pessimist. I think he was a realist and a godly sage. The wise person has eyes in his head. And for this one, light is sweet. If you entered into this room weary and worn today, if you might feel dry or like God is distant, if you feel burdened excessively by the cares of this world, I just urge you, take some time today to pause and reminisce on glimpses of light from your past and allow that matched with prayer to fuel, to fuel the peace that you long for. In Christ, our God is for us. And he who did not spare his own son, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? And how will he not with him also make us more than conquerors through him who loved us? And indeed, brothers and sisters, nothing in all creation, nothing at all, will be able to separate us from his love. So how? How can we nurture a heart that is satisfied in God? Verses 7 and 8 stressed the need to be satisfied in the Lord. And I think 11.9 through 12.1 just lay out a pattern. Now what we miss in our English translations is that the six imperatives, the six commands that show up in these verses are all conjoined. They're all linked by a conjunction. So you could read it, rejoice and walk and know and remove and put away and remember. Now, I've taken these six and I've grouped them into what seems natural breaking points, four stages. So we want to know, God, what are you giving us today? You, the great shepherd from whom all wisdom comes. How can I be satisfied in you? Four steps. Number one, rejoice always. Number two, run wisely. Number three, remove your cares. Step four, Remember your creator. Rejoice always, run wisely, remove your cares, and remember your creator. Let's walk through each of them. Step one in retaining our satisfaction in God. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Choose joy. Now, if you're a seminarian, 
or if you're a college student, either one, right now, this day, you are setting patterns for the type of man, the type of woman you will be tomorrow. You are putting into into the system of your life habits of heart, habits of mind, that are going to shape the kind of businessman you will be, the kind of mother you will be, the kind of spouse you will be. And the question is, will you choose joy and will you choose to put that joy in the right place? What is the object of your delights today? What has captured your affections? What's mastering your soul? What would your spouse or your roommate say is mastering your soul? Is it your image before others? Is it your ease? So that when a storm comes, it actually ruffles you. Are you grounded in a rock and resting in the refuge of Christ? Or are you living in a tent on sand? Often it's our reactions rather than our actions that actually clarify what's deep down in our hearts. It's often through loss that we find out that we had misplaced hopes, misplaced identity, that we weren't ultimately grounding who we were and what we were trusting in, in God, but in stuff, in people. Choosing to rejoice is easier when the days are bright, but God's worth is displayed all the more in the night when you can't console your baby. When you learn that your dad's lost his job. When you find out that the melanoma has reached stage four. Our joy in God can look like laughs and smiles and praise reports after two weeks of boot camp. And that's right. When the Spurgeon Knights win their first basketball game, our joy will look a certain way. When you've studied hard and you do well on your exam, joy is going to take the form of of elation. But believe me, joy can take other forms like tears, like deep-seated cries from the soul. Oh God, help me. That's joy. How do you respond when you find out your spouse has been in a car accident or when your child is going to have chromosomal deformities? Will it be with joy? In this book, to rejoice is to delight in God and his gifts, both in prosperity and in adversity, in both pleasure and in pain. And delight takes numerous forms depending on the circumstances. Rejoicing is something greater than happiness. You may not feel happy, but God calls us to still have joy such that Paul can declare most of his life as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. God, help us learn what it means to be satisfied in you. Step two. Not only do you choose joy, you run wisely. Look with me at the second half of verse 9. 
But you know that for all these things, God will bring you, sorry, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. A preacher really has to know his audience if he's going to tell them, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. In Deuteronomy, Moses' three favorite words for his audience who just came through the wilderness was rebellious, stubborn, and unbelieving. And because of that, in Numbers 15.39, he told them not to follow after your own heart or your own eyes. But I think the context of Ecclesiastes is completely different. The rest of Ecclesiastes strongly clarifies that the wise king is by no means commending an unrestrained worldly pursuit of pleasure. As I've already noted, in 11.7 through 12.1, he's talking to the wise man who has eyes to see. And so we should ask ourselves, what does this book tell us about the wise? Chapter 8, verse 5, the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. Chapter 10, verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. So if the wise person's heart is bent Godward, knowing the just way, then it makes sense why the preacher would say, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. These will be God's ways. If you're among the wise today, sitting in this room, those who have tasted and seen that God is good, who treasure God, who want to follow God, then part of the way you nurture satisfaction in God is in delighting in his gifts. In the words of chapter 9, verse 7, go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. Why? Because God's already approved of what you do. Paul told Timothy that requiring professing believers to always abstain from marital sex or certain foods was a teaching of demons. For everything that God has made is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, 1 Timothy 4.4. 4. There may be seasons where you choose due to fasting or due to a community agreement to abstain, and that's fine. But you cannot make it a principle across the board. Instead, we are supposed to recognize that pork is victory food and that we can delight in it. For God has already approved what you do. Delighting in the gifts provide a channel for us to rightly delight in the giver. And yet there's a caution. Do you see it? We must be sure to make every step, every decision, every click of the mouse, every purchase, every glance, knowing that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. All of life, all of work is a gift from God. The very joy to delight in that is a gift from God. And therefore, we are accountable in how we pursue our daily life. In 3.16, the preacher bemoaned, I saw unto the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. But then he declared in the very next verse, God will judge the righteous. God will judge the wicked for there is a time for every matter and every work. The Lord will hold us accountable for every word and every deed. Believe it. Believe it. And this fact should color our pursuit of joy. 
At the core, what the preacher is calling for is a daily ethic grounded in the fear of God. And he's convinced that those who fear God will have a future beyond the grave, filled with sustained joy and no night. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life in this age, yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Or the final verses of the book, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, both good and evil. You and I ought to enjoy Chipotle and a sparkling water for the glory of God. We can delight in pastries and places and peoples, but we must do so with God and the final judgment ever on our minds. God's gifts are means for nurturing our satisfaction in the giver. God said it. God did it. God made it. God, God, God. Genesis 1 1 through 2, 3. 35 times Elohim shows up. God made the stars. God made the moose. God made the watermelon. It's not just saying it over and over again to let us know that it came from him. It's telling us that as we see those things, it's to direct us back to him. Step three, remove your cares. Remove vexation from your heart, it says. In verse 10, and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Now the verbs to remove and to put away identify that finding joy at all times, actually having our satisfaction grounded in the Lord, even in the midst of darkness, requires that we decide not to allow our burdens, our confusions, our vexations, our troubles to wear us down. And that kind of a decision is very hard. It's so hard to just say, I'm not going to be anxious. The preacher is not calling us to act as though life is a party when indeed it's a pain. No, he is clear. There is a time to weep and there is a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. We don't ignore human troubles. But we determine under the grace of God, help us, oh God, that we will not allow those troubles to consume us. Satan is wanting to deceive us in thinking that we are bound by those troubles and God is greater. Jesus commanded, don't be anxious about anything. Look at the birds. They neither sow nor store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Hear that. You are more valuable to God than a bird, and yet he's taking care of them. Paul says, don't be anxious, but pray with thanksgiving, and God's going to bring you peace. Many of us enter into this room with weights on our shoulders. Hear this though. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And if he is allowing you to be humbled right now, he is putting you by his mercy, even in the midst of your pain, he's putting you in a context where you can receive grace, where you're not self-reliant, but you can become God-dependent. And therefore, Peter says, 
Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humble yourself by casting all your cares upon him. That's it. How do I humble myself? Just pray. Call out to God for help. That's joy. Because youth and the dawn of life are just filled with confusion, enigma, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. That's step three in how to maintain God-conscious joy. Finally, there is no higher gift from God for us to be satisfied in him than to remember him. Remember, look what it says, verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. What in 11.8 was called the days of darkness, now they're called evil days. And Paul says, live as wise rather than unwise in such times. None of us are free from suffering. If you're still young today and haven't experienced a lot of pain, it's coming. But this is a merciful time for you. It's an opportunity you have to begin to build the building blocks, the memorial stones of the encounters with God's grace, the encounters with God's mercy that can help sustain you lifelong. And it's also an opportunity for you to build a groundedness in a conviction in the bigness of God, in the absolute sovereignty of God, because if Satan can thwart his purposes, you have no hope for tomorrow. Look at verse, chapter 11, verse 5. Just as you do not know the way the Spirit comes into the bones of the womb of a child, so you do not know the work of the God who makes everything. It doesn't say he made everything, he's making it. We have a God who is at work right now. He's upholding everything by the word of his power. And if he stops speaking, you and I will stop living. That's a big God. Chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, uh, sorry, chapter 7, 13 and 14. Consider the work of God, people, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God. God has made the one as well as the other so that man cannot know what's coming after him. We are ignorant. We are small, but God's in charge. His purposes are not thwarted through the surprising death of a parent. His, his sovereignty is not questioned when a house search gets dragged out or when you just don't know whether you're going to get a ministry post when you graduate. He was at work in your illness during boot camp. He's sovereign over the car accident, the homesickness, the night terrors. He was on the throne before the cancer struck, and he is still on the throne today. Take comfort, brothers and sisters. He is the creator, and we are aided when we take our eyes off of our problem and direct them toward the one who alone can provide solutions. We cry, oh, I believe, help my unbelief. If all the power of God that we cannot contain 
And if all the power of God that we cannot explain is working for us, then we need not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. We gain boldness to leave houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and lands for Christ's sake and for the sake of the gospel. We need not falter in our faith when we fail an exam or when we find our marriage struggling. Oh God, keep us believing. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. He is stronger. He is higher. And because of this, we have hope today. Remember your creator and that this creator is for you. He's a good guide through the darkness who will protect you. He will provide. In conclusion, find rest today, remembering your creator and celebrating that he has given you eyes to see his light. Rejoice always. Run wisely. Remove your cares Remember your creator. And as you do, embrace every glimpse of God's goodness shown ultimately in and through Christ so that you can have fuel to persevere to the end. Jesus is the light of the world who has opened our blind eyes. It's the spirit of Christ in us that produces within us sustained joy. It is Jesus who embodies every bit of the ideal wisdom found in this text. And it is his substitutionary death and his imputed righteousness that allows God to justly work for us and to satisfy our souls. The queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But I tell you, brothers and sisters, there is one greater than Solomon who is here. Jesus is the ultimate one who will judge the earth. Through him, the Lord can justly take all of our cares. And he promises, come to me. Just come. All you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus is the one by whom all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is the one who said, I am the bread of life. Anyone who comes to me will never hunger. Anyone who believes in me will never thirst. So I just urge you, brothers and sisters, seek satisfaction in the Lord today. Rejoice always, run wisely, remove your cares, and remember your creator. And let the certainty that God has worked for you in Christ supply you all you need to persevere through the darkest of days unto the time when there will be no night. Now, may the God of peace himself satisfy and sanctify you completely so that your whole spirit, soul, and body may be kept blameless at the day of his coming. He who promised, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.